Well, good morning, everyone, on this sunny Sunday morning. Uh, uh, welcome. Uh, maybe I should start singing I Kiss the Rains Down in Africa. Uh, that would link the weather and the topic. Uh, uh, as any student of uh, history or journalism or English knows, has anyone been a student of uh, one of those three things, journalism or history or language? Oh, sorry, or of, of English? Uh, that, that, I think English is a language, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, uh, yeah, you've got, you, oh, you, you're at high school, of course you're studying one of those. Are you studying journalism, Robert? No. Uh, history? You still do that? Okay, they still have that in schools. Excellent. And English, you do that? Excellent. If you've been a student in one of those uh, fields, uh, the five most important questions you're taught to ask about any topic are... There you go. There you go. See if you got them right. Who, what, where, when and why. There you go. Now, I think that they think that because they can't count. Uh, because if you study maths or science, or if you're an armchair detective and just like kind of watching the murder mystery shows, you know there's one more vitally important question, which is how. There you go. But it doesn't start with W, and so yeah, it's, it's too hard, I think, for the journalist to remember. Uh, but anyway, over the last few weeks, as we've engaged with the last and final command that Jesus gave to his church, uh, the mission that he left us here on earth to do, uh, we've been working our way through those questions so that we might find out what our Lord and Saviour is really asking of us when he gives us the Great Commission. And hopefully by now you can joyfully and confidently answer uh, most, most, if not all, of these questions here, even the how one. Uh, what is the mission? Anyone? We've read the same passage every week for the last two months. Go make disciples. There you go. Oh, good. Someone was listening. That is to, to help people come to know Jesus and then and help them grow towards maturity as his followers. Why? Because they need to hear. Right? Why do they need to hear? So they can be saved. Yep. And because... Jesus told us to, there you go. Uh, and well, and because he has all authority in heaven and earth, therefore I say go make disciples. He owns the world, uh, and he is the judge of the world, and uh, his purpose is to gather for himself uh, a people uh, for his own glory and for their good, because he loves them and he's laid down his life for them. Uh, who makes disciples? Is it just the special few? No. Who is it? Everyone. That's right, something all Christians are to be engaged in uh, joyfully. Uh, when? When should we make disciples? Now. now, always, right, that's right. We keep at it until he comes back. It wasn't something for the early church, you know, just while it was in its infancy. It's now. Today is the day of God's favour. Today is the day of salvation. And after someone dies or after Jesus returns, it's too late. And so now is the time. How are disciples made? There you go, go to the other slide there. How? Proclamation, hear the word I heard. Yeah, that's right. We, we talked about Dave did the four Ps, right? As God's people, that's us, uh, prayerfully, dependent on the Spirit, proclaim God's word, persevering step by step. You know, praying, sharing the, the gospel, and sticking with it 
and sticking with the people that we're loving and caring for. That's how they're made. Uh, and we thought, uh, we've thought a little bit about how uh, we can do that helpfully, uh, and we're getting into more and more practicalities of that in the next few weeks. But the one basic question from that list that we haven't covered yet is where? Where are disciples made? Where is Jesus sending us to go? And here, everywhere, in one sense, the answer is pretty easy, isn't it? There you go. Uh, how do you get that from the Great Commission? Well, go and make disciples of all nations. Well done, everyone. That's where. Uh, there you go. Stop now. You can go home early. But I just want to ask, if that's the case, if we're to go and make disciples of all nations, does that mean that we should all pack up our bags, sell up our homes and go overseas, like Amy Stevens, like the Blouse Seniors, and, and do it for the long haul? Uh, or is Jesus expecting us to be like the Mormon missionaries? Uh, every Mormon man has to uh, go overseas on a two-year mission at his own expense to spread the word of Mormonism. Uh, that is their contribution to well, what they see as Jesus' mission, but... Uh, is that what Jesus wants us to do, although we'd go with the real message of salvation and not some bizarre nonsense about becoming a god of your own planet while you're wearing funny underwear? But anyway, that's uh, you can ask the next missionary who knocks on your door about that. Uh, yeah, is that what Jesus wants us to do? Or, or, or have we got to a stage now in history where, you know what, the gospel's gone far enough into the world? Because actually, if you look around and you can do the research, but there's now Christians in every nation of this world, even in North Korea, which is a closed country and it's supposedly the hardest place on earth to be a Christian. There are churches even there. There are three churches in North Korea that are sanctioned by the government, right? Only three. Uh, and they have to uh, submit the sermons and the, the everything uh, for government veto beforehand. So I'm not sure what they get to say in those churches. And there's plenty of underground churches but given that they exist now, even in a country like that, does that mean that we're all off the hook, that we don't have to go? When Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, does it really actually have any impact on anything we do as a church together or as individual Christians in our witness? And that's the kind of things we're working on this morning. And I want to start by being... Uh, by thinking about what, what does Jesus mean by the nations, when he says that's where we've got to go, and what, what God's plan for the nations is. Um, now, you might recall from the start of the Bible in the book of Genesis, which we were looking at at the end of last year, that, that the reason that there is such a diversity of nations and cultures and languages in the first place is because of what? Remember? Sin. Because of sin? Yeah. What, what particularly about it? Tower of Babel. Uh, God judged the world because of the Tower of Babel. Before Babel, there was only one, uh, one group of humans with one language. Humanity united together. And, and yet in their arrogance and pride, uh, they thought they'd prove themselves and make a name for themselves rather than trying to honour their creator. And so they built this whacking great big tower, thinking they could even reach up into the heavens to prove how great they were. And God had judged them. We, we saw how he tore down the tower, he smashed it to the ground. But then he'd said this. He said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So come, let's go down and confuse their language so they'll not understand each other. 
And so from that point, humanity was scattered and divided. And it's no wonder, is it, in a world like that, uh, under God's judgment where uh, he's made it so that we cannot communicate with each other and unite with each other, that there's so much miscommunication and so many barriers and there's such tribalism that exists in our world. Uh, whichever part of the world you're in, that, that is the reality. We don't like the others. Uh, but uh, God wasn't done with the end. Of, that's not the end of the nations as far as God's concerned. Uh, in the very next chapter, that's chapter 11, in chapter 12, God calls Abram, as you recall, who'd one day become the father of Israel, and he makes him right at the start an incredible promise. Uh, he says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, that is Israel, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is, you've got to think about it, God's plan from the very beginning of the Bible, from, from the beginning of his redemption story of humanity, was actually to bring his blessing to all the nations of the earth, even the nations who he cursed and judged and divided and scattered. Right? He, his, his intention was to bless them. Through Abraham, he said he was going to do it. That is, Israel was never God's end point. It was supposed to be the mechanism of bringing God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, in one sense, they never really did that, did they? For the most part, Israel was hated by all the surrounding nations, and in turn, they despised and hated them right back. And that's still the way it is today, isn't it? I mean, everyone is at war with Israel, and Israel's at war with everyone. The Middle East is like it is because of this hatred that's gone on and on, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. And you can't really blame one or the other. It's, I mean, it's everyone doing it together. But you get to the prophets like Isaiah later in the Old Testament, and God says that one day God's going to bring his servant, who's not just going to restore Israel's fortunes, but he's going to come to save the other nations as well. And it comes up several times. But for example, in Isaiah 49 verse 6, uh, it is too small a thing, he's talking to his servant, for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will make you into a uh, light for the Gentiles. Gentiles is the Jewish word for all the other peoples and nations, all the, the non-Jews, the, the, you know, the pagans and outsiders. Uh, I'll make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's just one of many passages through the end of Isaiah and the other prophets uh, that speak about that same kind of thing. And so as Jesus arrives 800 years after that prophecy, the gospel makes it clear that he's the one who's come to bring these kinds of promises to fruition Jesus comes as the son of Abraham, according to Matthew 1.1. And during his life uh, and ministry, people from all over the world, in dribs and drabs, uh, come to him uh, right from his birth. The Magi who travelled from uh, the land to the east, uh, they came, they were you know, astrologers and sort of who knows what they, their religious beliefs were, but they came to worship Jesus. Uh, the centurion who trusted Jesus in a way that Jesus says no one else in Israel's trusted me like you do, you know, his servant saved. And then the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter is very ill uh, and so on. And in, and in terms of his teaching, it's not like the Great Commission should have come out of the blue for any of the disciples. 
Uh, he told them in chapter 10 when he sent them on the first little mission trip, he said, well, one day in the future you will speak before the Gentile nations. In chapter 13, he says, you know, you go on, you got to pray for the harvest. It's plentiful. Uh, but he finishes in Matthew's account with saying, uh, how big's the harvest? The harvest is the world. And as you move through the New Testament, the same thing comes up again and again. Paul writes to the Christians up in Ephesus, up in where modern day Turkey is, to reassure them in part of God's promises and that just because they are foreigners to Israel, they're not excluded and that God, God had something for them. And so Ephesians 2 and verse 11. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, you, you know, kind of outsiders to Israel and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember, at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. God's purpose was to create uh, in himself, I've probably moved on here, right, sorry. Um, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. And he came and preached peace to those of you who were near, to both Gentile and Jew. And that is, you know, the Bible is consistent in this message that, that God's in it for the nations. So much so that you get to the back of the Bible and that uh, third reading we had from Revelation right at the end of the Bible. And we're given this glorious picture of, 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 of people who are gathered in heaven and saved by Jesus and gathered around him singing his praises in joy and what did it say? Who's there? After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the Bible from front to back, is on about how God is in the process of bringing humanity back together. Right? Not, not back together united round a giant tower in their rebellion against God. Not with one world government ruled over from New York City. Not a new humanity in the kind of uneasy tolerance that we currently call multiculturalism, where everyone barely tolerates each other but smiles nicely, uh, and where everyone continues to defy God, each in their own way, in their own neighbourhood. Now, God's in the business of bringing humanity together around Jesus Christ, right? It, notice it's not from every religion, it's every tribe, uh, nation, lang people and language as they've come to Christ, right? He's calling everyone to Christ, and as his gospel goes out and people are called from whatever national, cultural, religious or language background, they give their lives to him. That is, the gospel is for everyone. And as people come to Christ, the, the barriers of hostility are broken down. Even long-held hatreds and, and divisions. I remember at uni, uh, there was uh, um, about the same time a girl from Laos and, and a girl from 
Vietnam who became Christians around about the same week. And they said, oh, great, you're both in the science faculty. Uh, we've got a Bible study on for, for science students. I think you'd really benefit from it. They walked in the room, looked at the other one and walked straight back out and wouldn't go back because I'm not going to sit in a room with that kind of person. You know, I, I like this Jesus idea and I'm happy to hang out with the white guys. There's no way if that person's here. And later they became the best friends um, because the gospel breaks down those hatreds and barriers. It, it removes the dividing wall of hostility. But that is the, the evangelization of the world isn't incidental to God's purposes. It's, it's bang on what God's purpose is. And it's no wonder that since God's plans for the nations, since that's the kind of future that he's building, that Christianity of all of the world religions... Uh, that have ever existed has always been the missionary religion. The gospel is a message for everyone that transcends national borders. It goes through language barriers. It takes down cultural boundaries and hostilities. And it's kind of fascinating as you, you can trace the history of the spread of the news of Jesus around the world. Uh, as God's people prayerfully went with God's message of hope and life in Jesus persevering step by step as as they did those four p's right that we were talking about the other week uh let me give you uh, a bit of a, a snapshot within one year of jesus rising from the dead around 33 ad the first ethiopian became a christian right you can read about him in the book of acts uh, and the first roman centurion became a christian and they took with them the message of the gospel back home with them. Uh, in 42 AD, Mark, uh, who wrote the gospel later, uh, took the gospel to Egypt, uh, of all places. So, yeah, in 47 AD, people were becoming Christians in Crete and in Turkey. By 50 AD, so many non-Jews were becoming Christians that they had to have an emergency meeting of the Council of Jerusalem uh, to know how to handle it and work out what to do. Okay, all right. Uh, uh, okay, actually, non-Jews are becoming Christians. Do they have to be Jewish? Do they not have to be? How does this all work? How are we going to relate? In 52 AD, the Apostle Thomas took the gospel to India. The, uh, he went that way. By 100 AD, there were Christians in Algeria. In 150 AD, the gospel reached Portugal and Morocco. Uh, as it went sort of north, uh, west and southwest. In 197 AD, Tertullian wrote that Christianity had penetrated all ranks of society across North Africa. Uh, in 208 AD, the same guy, Tertullian, wrote that Christ has followers on the far side of Hadrian's Wall where the Roman legions have not been able to penetrate. That is, the gospel can go and save people and get where even the greatest army in the world cannot go. Uh, in 535 AD, there were missionaries in China. In 700 AD, they were erecting um, uh, monuments uh, in China uh, to say that this, this area has now become uh, followers of the luminous religion, uh, you know, the, the religion of light, which is Christianity. In 740 AD, the gospel reached Iceland. There you go. Someone became a Christian there. And on and on and out and out the gospel went. And at one level, I think that's just exciting, isn't it, to see how the gospel spread. It's thrilling to know that the power of the gospel 
has always been such that it didn't matter where it went, people came to life in Jesus, such that today, as I said, there's not a country on earth that doesn't have a Christian at least in it. But where are we in the spread of the gospel? Uh, when, when did the news of Jesus come to Australia? You should know this date. Anyone? Yeah, 2017. No, it wasn't then. Uh, got, got a guess? 1788. There you go. With the first fleet. Uh, because the Christians in England prayed and made sure uh, that they sent a chaplain uh, to evangelise this nation. Now, I think that should give us pause um, for a few reasons. It should give us pause uh, and, and that we might have very thankful hearts. Uh, God even had Australia in mind right back when he called Abraham four or so thousand years ago or longer. He had us in mind when Jesus gave the Great Commission and in his mercy raised up men and women, people like Richard Johnson, the first chaplain, who brought the gospel of freedom uh, to these shores uh, and, and gave it to everyone, to convict and to soldier, to free settler and to Aboriginal without fear nor favour. He saw the first Aboriginal converts uh, and he wrote a letter to everyone who he could find in the country. He wrote a little tract uh, on why they all needed to become Christians. He was a great evangelist. Uh, and he did it without fear nor favour because he knew that this was the one piece of news that everyone, everyone needed. And so thank God for sending people like him here. But it also should give us pause for another reason. One of the temptations we face is to think that white Westerners are the normal face of Christianity. That is simply not true. Uh, and it's almost in the entire history of the gospel never been true. All right? Maybe there was a couple of hundred years period where you could say possibly. But it's not true historically. Uh, and it's not true now. Israel was the heartland of the gospel and Christianity. But God's mercy was such that it wasn't limited to Israel or to the Middle East or to the nations surrounding there in the early days. And we are the happy recipients of the gospel uh, because they were obedient. Because people thousands of years later, sitting on the other side of the world, rejoicing in our Saviour because he sent them. That is, we often think of ourselves as the, the, uh, the ones that Jesus is speaking first and foremost to, but actually we are the nations who God has called in. We're the outsiders who've joyfully joined in with Jesus because God had a plan and, and a vision for us and, and he was creating that kind of future. But I think that also means that we need to have a bigger vision for our gospel proclamation than we normally do, a far bigger vision. God is not just interested in us reaching the few people that we happen to know and like and pray for. I mean, who are the people you pray for to become Christian? Probably your children or your grandchildren. Maybe your next-door neighbour if you happen to like them a lot, right, uh, kind of thing, or that, that your buddy at work or the person from school. But, but Jesus wants the whole neighbourhood. And he doesn't just want the Westerners. 
He wants the Filipinos living over in uh, um, uh, Macquarie Links. He wants the Bangladeshis uh, living up this way. He wants the South Americans. And, and he's not just after the positively disposed, he's after the hard hearts. He's calling the materialist, atheist, white people. He's calling the Muslims. He's calling the Hindus uh, to lay down their arms. He's calling the not too sure, too sure what they are's um, all to come to Christ and to bow the knee and to receive the life that he's offering. And he's not just after the world to do. He's after the housing commission and he's after the blue collar workers, uh, just as he's after the white collar ones. And he's not just interested in our neighborhood in the southwest of Sydney. He's after the whole city. In fact, he's after the whole state, even Wilcannia, uh, right? Which, uh, John was sharing something about this morning at eight o'clock after the church. He wants not just the state, he wants the whole nation. In fact, he wants every nation. We're going to have a far bigger vision. There is a whole lost world to win. And so the question then becomes, well, which part or parts of this vast world, if that's the mission field, does God want us personally to go after or you personally to go after? If there is a whole world to choose from, where are you going to go? (laughs) Well, I do think that some of us should seriously be thinking about going and doing missionary work overseas. Uh, A healthy church is not just one that prays lip service to world mission, or even that just prays, and I'm glad we pray for our uh, couple of link missionaries, but that just prays for them. A healthy church is one that prays that God would raise up more and more workers for his harvest. That's what he told us to pray for. And then looks around at each other and says, all right. Who's gone? Is it you? (laughs) Is it you? Uh, But before we all leave for Guam or Tahiti, as, uh, you know, know, because we want to really go on holiday there, but, you know, uh, or some other exotic location or traditional place that we might go, you know, like Tanzania, you know, Australia sends missionaries to Tanzania. The more, more missionaries have gone to Tanzania than any other part of the world from Australia. There you go. uh, and it's one of the most highly populated Christian countries in the world. So why are we still sending missionaries there? Well, there may be good reasons, but let me, let me point out two things that might help us shape personally where we're going to commit to making disciples ourselves. The first is that generally speaking, it's the West that is most in need of the gospel. While Europe and England might have a wonderful history of Christian thought and witness, They are some of the darkest places on God's earth at the moment for the gospel. Whereas places like Africa and India, Christianity is thriving. In fact, they are the ones sending missionaries to the West because they know we're so lost without the gospel that we once sent to them or that the Europeans once sent to them. Uh, The largest sending missionary nations on earth are India, South Korea and the US. There you go. Uh, They're sending missionaries to us because they know we need the gospel. CMS, people often question CMS, which is the, uh, I think it's a great missionary organisation. It's the one our church chooses to support, and I know many individuals support, one that Amy Stevens and the Blouse have gone with. Uh, it's, um, It's the only missionary agency that guarantees to pay their wages. Uh, even if they haven't raised all the money themselves. Uh, that's why I think it's, it's, it's one of the best, because uh, we know they're supported. 
you know, no matter what we do each year. Um, uh, CMS are often questioned because uh, their focus has changed to Germany and France. And people go, what would you want to send missionaries there? I mean, they've, they've got churches everywhere. Yes, but they don't have Christians, uh, right? Uh, uh, the Eastern Bloc countries may have had once uh, you know, a, a thriving orthodoxy, but it, it's, uh, the gospel is despised. Um, the national hero of Slovenia was a guy from the 1500s who was an e- evangelical missionary. He is the national hero, right? Everyone knows the guy's name, but no one would believe the gospel that he taught. The Reformed Church in Slovenia are scared and frightened of what will be done to them if they go on any kind of mission uh, and refuse to do it, and it's just really sad. The West, Europe in particular, needs missionaries. The second thing to point out, though, is that the nations doesn't just mean places, but instead it means all the peoples of the world. And once you start thinking peoples and tribal groups and cultures and and languages, if you haven't noticed it yet, you need to open your eyes and look around because all of the nations of the world are turning up in Ingleburn and Macquarie Fields and the southwest of Sydney. We can do world mission right here on our own doorstep. And Jesus, at the very least, is calling us to open our eyes and to look around and to open our hearts and to not be parochial and not be racist and not be jealous. He's calling us uh, to repent and to renounce any semblance of what uh, might be called our ghetto mentality. I think a lot of churches have a ghetto mentality. You know the kind of thing where we're thinking that we really, really only care for people who are like us or, you know, we'll only pray for people who we really hope will join our church and, you know, we'll just stop there. Uh, some of the Bible study groups are following along the sermon series with a, a set of Bible studies from Matthias Media. Um, and Cole Marshall, uh, in, in the Bible study for this week, uh, wrote this. Most churches struggle to look out beyond their doors and the boundaries of their fellowship to the neighbours, people, subcultures and communities all around them that are in desperate need of Christ. We tend to default to an inward-looking sort of clubbishness, to a comfortable satisfaction with ourselves and our own friends and community. We find it hard to change and put ourselves out for the sake of reaching people who are different from us, who aren't part of our ethnic or cultural family, whom we might even dislike or with whom we feel nothing in common. You feel that? Uh, Do you think that might be true of us? Now, in one sense, that's nothing new. Even the apostles, the very ones that Jesus spoke on the mountain that day to, took some time to get their minds around what Jesus was saying and get on with it. And even then, not without some hard lessons from Jesus personally. And no wonder... Because they were all Jews who regarded everyone else as completely beyond the pale. I mean, how can God save them? Why would he want to? They were the pagans, the heathens. They were the people whose houses we'd never bother entering. We want to eat with them. But God had to shake that attitude out of them. In Acts chapter 10, three times God had to do the same thing. He had to show Peter an incredible vision uh, and explain it to him in detail afterwards each time before he'd believe it. You know, the vision of a picnic blanket coming down at a heaven with all kinds of 
uh, unclean animals and he's told to go and eat. And he's like, oh, that's disgusting. I wouldn't put that in my mouth. You told me not to. What? Why, why do you want me to do? He says, go and eat. And he has to explain it again and again, three times. And in the end, the lesson that Peter's supposed to learn is actually God's got a heart for the nations and you've got to get over yourself, buddy, and get out there. The same Peter, as I said, who'd been there on the mountain with Jesus telling him he's got to go to all nations. And he didn't, he didn't know, believe, or until then. So how do you get over that ghetto mentality that we so easily fall into? And to answer that, I want to take us to one big principle uh, from the scriptures. And then I, I, want, I want us to flesh it out with a number of, um, well, instead of implications, just say a number of questions for personal reflection that uh, I've handed out for, to you, and they're on the sheet that you would have gone away. And we'll don't go and get it, and we'll look in a minute. Um, but let's get the principle first before we look at the questions. The big principle, if we're going to be obedient to Jesus and attempt to win people from whatever background or cultural or social strata they're from, um, the principle that will help us to start to think and to act uh, and become missionaries, which is really what God's calling us to be. I mean, if you may think that Australia is a Christian nation, and I personally don't think it ever has been, um, uh, and I'll give you reasons for that, but if it ever was true, it's not true now, right? We are post-Christian. Uh, you know, Christianity is on the nose, it's on the outside. And so if ever we had to think as missionaries, now is the time. We are... God's people sent as missionaries into a foreign nation, even though we grew up here, right, that doesn't know him and needs him. How do you start to think and act and become like that? Well, the answer is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which was our second reading uh, there. Pick it up in verse 19. The, the, he's been, the, the Corinthians raised a question with him, and like, oh, is it okay to eat down with our neighbours uh, at their um, place of worship to the foreign gods? That'd, that'd be wrong, wouldn't it? And you know, would I have them over to eat? Uh, I, is that is that legit? I don't think that's Christian uh, eating with strangers. <laughs> um, and he's smashing them for three chapters. But in the middle of it, he says this: "Though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible." To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, so as to win the weak. I become all things... Yes, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Now, he's not saying to the drunk, I became a drunk so as to win the drunks. He's not saying you can go and just join in with whatever godless behaviour is going on. That's just an example. Uh, but he's, what's the principle he's laying out? He's, he's talking about having such a profound... Love and humility that you'll even say to yourself, I don't care about standing on my own rights. I don't care, uh, sorry, I don't care about uh, that things must be done the way I like things to be done 
or the church is done the way I exactly like it to be done. You know what? I would give them all up if it meant that someone else might come to know my wonderful Lord Jesus and find life and joy and salvation in him. See, what is it that I could possibly justify clinging to and say, well, you know, this is part of my cultural heritage or the way that I like to do things and it's so important that I can't give it up in a moment if it means that someone else could come to know Jesus. I mean, what are you saying you would trade for someone else going to heaven and avoiding hell? What, what's worth that? Anything? The kinds of food I eat? The kinds of people I'll associate with? The way that I dress and present myself? The, the kind of next-door neighbours I'd ever associate with or, or go to their house for dinner or have them over? I mean, they're exactly the kinds of things that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10, foods and customs and so on. It's so hard, though, isn't it, to cross cultural barriers because we still live with the effects of the Tower of Babel. When God split us apart as a race, he did a really good job, right? Uh, And the barriers are real and they are always going to keep getting in the way. Language barriers. I was talking to someone after 8 o'clock about their next-door neighbour. They said, this lady... Oh, we would invite her over to dinner, but she doesn't speak English and we just can't communicate and we, we draw pictures and stuff when we're just talking over the fence and it's so frustrating and what, how, I could never do it. I said, what language does she speak? She says, Spanish. I said, oh, fancy that. We've got a Spanish church. Anyway, so <laughs> we have a Spanish-speaking minister of all. Anyway, why don't you have them both over to dinner together? Um, but language barrier is so hard, isn't it? But even things like cultural quirks and tastes and mannerisms, which might mean something completely different to someone else. Uh, when you do the ESL training, I mean, I think there's a, there's a number of our members here uh, come and just help with the ESL class or teach it, uh, which is really great. Um, uh, but they, they, they teach you, you know, that when you do this, you know, to someone else, you're saying, come over here, right? And it's terribly insulting to uh, someone from the Middle East, it, it's a real put down, okay? Just leave it at that. Uh, and so you, you could go away fearing and thinking, well, I can't do anything and do anything because I might offend them, they might kill me, I don't know, or hate me. Um, uh, you know, it's like I'm sticking my finger up at them or something. You know, it's, uh, it, it is challenging, it's hard. And, but the reaction of our sinful hearts is that We just want ease and we want comfort and so we only make room for people who are just like me and like doing things my way. And that same sinful heart that's within me starts to build up contempt for the other person and it it builds up fear towards people not like us. Uh, And, you know, we can start to say terribly racist things and horrible things like uh, if those people take over this nation it's going to go to the dogs and things like that whoever we might be talking about as if it hasn't gone to the dogs already because the white people hate God and hate each other and we're living with like a 50% divorce rate in our community and we just destroy each other as if it hasn't gone to the dogs because of what we've done But God is calling me and he's calling you to get over all that and a heart, have a heart that's transformed by Jesus, a heart that now bleeds for my neighbour, whoever they are, whatever their culture or background, and bleed and begs God that they might come to Christ. He's calling me to love them in a self-sacrificial way and to ask myself, what possible thing can I do 
to make it easier for them to come to know Jesus. And then as we start to build them and take steps with them and, and build these relationships, how can I speak into that relationship, the word of the gospel, so that they can come and find life? And I think many of us are afraid uh, and unnecessarily afraid. We think just because white people hate uh, talking about religion and spirituality that everyone must uh, and we're going to get you know beaten up or something like that. Actually, all the other cultures think that we're crazy because we don't talk about God. Uh, and you, you say, where do you come from? Yeah, oh, right. Are you, are you a Muslim? Are you a Hindu? And you have a great conversation and find out all sorts of things about them and they about you. And even they can say, oh, I don't really understand Christianity. And you just get into it. If there is no other truth than the truth of Jesus, if there is no other way to God than through Jesus, if there is no other life that can be had than the life that Jesus offers, then there's nothing worth clinging on to if it stops someone else hearing about the salvation that he has bought for them in his blood. But it requires a complete change of attitude that only God can work in us. It requires a love for the stranger that only God calls me to and that he first had for me. It requires God to completely rework this selfish, self-interested, self-centered thing that's in me to, to see the worth of those around me and to pray like anything that god might have mercy and save them and then do whatever it do- takes to open doors to bring god's gospel to them so that they might find life in him instead of uh concluding with implications as i uh, had planned originally uh, let me just talk you through some of these questions on the sheet and i, and I think these are things where we need to have discussions with each other about right as a church um, and you might want to start that over morning tea today uh, or in your Bible study groups. There's something to go away and reflect on as well. Uh, do you find it hard to relate to people who are different from you? Uh, if so, why? At least acknowledge it, you know, or why not if you don't find it difficult? How come you're different to everyone else? What is stopping you welcoming your neighbours into your life? What's stopping you welcoming them even into your home? Uh, Australia is one of the most isolated personally nations on the earth. The average Australian home has nine visitors a year uh, and seven of them are family and so you have to have them, right? <laughs> you can't turn them away. That we are, we put up the walls and no one can come near them is what that says. Why is that? Is that true of Christians? I don't know. What would change if you started to think of yourself as a missionary who was sent by God to go to your block or your street? What would change? What's stopping you becoming a missionary going overseas? You say, well, that's the night church people. That's Olivia. She can go. <laughs> She's young. <laughs> We're old. Uh, the blouses have, uh, well, they, they had gone as missionaries as young people, but they've gone back as near retirement, near retirees. Um, a, a friend of mine's parents have gone off to Africa, um, uh, at 63. Uh, you know what? Why wouldn't we? We're now available, took early retirement and went. Uh, there, there are difficulties, but what's stopping you? Is it something legitimate? How, how can you personally support others who are taking 
uh, the gospel overseas better. I've got a typo there. Um, how, how can we really encourage them? Uh, Amy is coming back later in the year uh, on, on leave for six months and she'll be visiting us. Uh, maybe you can ask her that question. Uh, last time I asked her that question, she said the thing that she loves the most and finds the most encouraging is when she gets a handwritten letter from Australia, from one of her supporters back home. Uh, and uh, there was someone from our church, uh, who's not a regular at our church, but writes to her every week. Um, that's Vic, tattoo man. Yeah? And she, she wanted to meet this Vic last time she was back and, and thank him uh, and stuff. She also likes things like Kit Kats and stuff she can't buy there. But anyway... But how can, how can you personally support her or others who are taking the mission overseas? Well, the final question, I think corporately, if we, if we as a church were to more seriously engage with our community for the sake of the gospel, what things might we have to put in place? What things might we have to change? You know, I am so thankful that we have people of many nations of this world at our church, although none of them are here at 10 o'clock looking around this morning. I don't know. Yeah, Karen's here, and Pauline, I think, was here. But, uh, uh, yeah, we've got Vietnamese and Egyptian and uh, Russian and uh, Sri Lankans. And that's fantastic. It's really, really exciting. Uh, we've had some Africans with us over the summer. They were on a break from Armadale Uni, and they enjoyed fellowship with uh, with David and um, and uh, Elvis. There you go. Elvis was in the building. Uh, <laughs> uh, he no longer is because he's gone back to Armadale. But... Um, uh, you know, and that's really terrific. But, you know, do we make it easy for them? I, I'm not sure that we do. Uh, is ESL, I mean, I'm glad we do ESL, that's fantastic. Uh, and and uh, our playgroup is uh, kind of half um, Asian, Nepalese uh, ladies and children, which is fantastic. And, we, and we've started a Spanish church, which is really great. Uh, do we say that's the best we can do and, and leave it at that? I, I don't know. But what can we do to more seriously engage with, with our community for the sake of the gospel? What might we have to change? I'll leave it there. Why not pray? Father, we thank you for these hard, challenging words, this, but life-giving words uh, of the gospel that you've given us to take to all the world. Father, help us to be determined to be missionaries, to be your ambassadors, wherever we are, whoever you've put us with. We do pray that you would raise up some from among us to go overseas, uh, to win, to win uh, parts of the world back maybe who've uh, lost the gospel or to go and encourage those places where it's, it's blossoming. And Father, we pray that you will raise up missionaries to come here uh, to speak into the hard culture of Australia. Uh, and we do pray for ourselves that we might think of ourselves that way, uh, that you might help us to love our neighbours and to bring your life-giving treasure of Jesus uh, to all around, not just those we know and who are like us, but everyone. Please give us the joy of seeing many, many people, whoever they are, from whatever background, come to life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.